All right. Well, some of the great joys in life are those opportunities that come around every once in a while where we get to hurry up and wait. Hear that before? Hurry up and wait. Don't you love it when that happens? Can you think of any hurry up and wait situations? I think of, when I think of hurry up and wait, I think of Cedar Point. Cedar Point, if you don't know, is a amusement park in Sandusky, Ohio, where I grew up. It was just about an hour away, so I was spoiled enough to get to go to Cedar Point about once a year, if not more. And for us, that hour-long drive, as a little boy, seemed forever. And then, once you got there, you had to park a couple miles away, right, from the gate, and the walk to the front gate seemed to take forever. And then you get in, and of course, people have to use the restroom. Ah, oh, can we just get in there already? Finally, finally, we get to go into the park. Unless, of course, you got to go put your stuff in the lockers, which then also takes forever. All of this is just killing us, isn't it? You get into the park, though. You see those coasters reaching into the sky. You're so excited. You rush over to the first ride, and then you get in line. <laughs> and you wait for two hours. Hurry up and wait. And of course, once you get to the end of that two-hour line, you get on that ride, which lasts a grand total of, what, two minutes, right? Well, maybe the airport. Think of the airport. You gotta get to that next flight, that connecting flight. Your plane lands and you know, you know you're gonna have to book it to the next gate. You know it, but you're sitting there, the plane's getting into the spot, you're waiting for who knows what they're doing before they let you stand up and you hear that ding. You finally get up and you gotta wait because you got a bad seat in the back of the plane, everybody's getting their stuff and you gotta walk out in an orderly fashion. You finally get out of the uh, plane, you get into the airport, you run across to the other end of the airport, you make it there just in the nick of time, you're totally out of breath to find that your flight's been delayed for an hour. <laughs> Hurry up and wait. We love those times. Now, Abram and Sarah are now, now feeling the pressure of a hurry-up-and-wait situation. God had promised that the seed of Abram would be innumerable, like the sand on the seashore, like, like the stars in the sky. But he and Sarah were getting, or had gotten, old. We're going to be in Genesis 16 today. Hear those pages turning. Remember, in the last chapter, that Abram, in order to fix this obvious problem of their age, had offered one of his servants, Eliezer of Damascus, he offered him as a potential heir. But God promised Abram that his very own son would be his heir. And Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As righteousness. And so Abram and Sarai wait, but sort of in a hurry-up kind of a way. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, who, by the way, is now 75 years old, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now that's front-loaded in the beginning of this chapter. We know something's coming, don't we? Uh, when would you guess, by the way, that, that Hagar, the Egyptian, became a servant of Abram and Sarai? Maybe, maybe when Pharaoh gave Abram servants in exchange for his wife, uh, perhaps we'll see another exchange today. Verse 2, <clears throat> Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord 
has prevented me from bearing children. Who did that? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. By her. Not having children would have been seen as a curse from God in that time. And Sarah was either blaming herself as if to say, I must have done something to deserve this curse, to deserve this curse from God. Or, Sarah's blaming God as if to say, don't look at me. It's not my fault we haven't had children. God is preventing me from getting pregnant. It seems to be that this option is what Sarah is getting after in this passage. Either way, the perspective is this. Sarah is 75 years old. Her childbearing years seem to be over. And we might laugh at that, but remember, they were still getting a little older. Their lives were a little bit longer back then. Don't know that 75 was still in the ballpark, but she's getting older, okay? Uh, So in her mind, there has to be another way. There needs to be a plan B. Now, the law, the written law, even in the famous Code of Hammurabi, allowed for this practice. If a wife was barren, she was permitted, and this is going to sound weird, but she was permitted to utilize her servant as a sort of surrogate. And if the servant bore a child with the husband, the child would legally be considered that of the husband and the wife. It was their child. It was their child, even if half the DNA was from the servant. Uh, This is what Sarai was suggesting as plan B. And notice, the desire was not for a child, but for children. And by the way, this might have been written uh, written law in the Code of Hammurabi, but it was never God's plan. Genesis 2.24. God gives his plan for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One man, one woman, one flesh. That's God's plan. Then you might ask, what about David? What about Solomon, the other kings of Israel? Why did they have so many wives? Why did God say that was okay? And the answer is that God never did say that that was okay. Even even when the Pharisees brought up the idea of divorce, remember, to Jesus, he said it was because of the hardness of your hearts that even that was mentioned in the law. But what did God say about this, about, about polygamy? Deuteronomy 17, 17, and this is specifically about kings, should they come, which of course they did, and God knew that. Deuteronomy 17, 17, this is written before any kings were in Israel, says he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. So God said no to this idea. So then, Sarai is suggesting to Abram man's plan for solving this problem. This was never God's plan. This is man's way of fulfilling God's promise. Sound wrong? Man's way of fulfilling God's promise. This is a little more hurry up and a little less wait. So what did Abram do? End of verse 2 says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, where have we heard a phrase like this in the past? How about the garden? God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And and how far does this correlation go? Uh, Look for these in the text as we read. Took, as in took the fruit. Gave, as in gave the fruit. And then, of course, partaking. 
Oh, by the way, why did Abram eat the fruit? Or why did <laughs> Abram didn't eat the fruit? Why did Adam eat the fruit? Because he wanted to. We do what we do because we want what we want. He did it because he wanted to. Why will Abram go into Hagar? Because he wanted to. This narrative isn't just about Sarai. So verse 3. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. So we could say they've been waiting for a child for 10 years, but in reality they've been waiting since they were married, right? After they've been there for 10 years, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, we could say who was with her, as a wife. And he, Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, when Hagar saw that, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarai. The question here, amongst all the other questions we might have, is why? Why would Hagar look at Sarai with contempt? Why would Hagar now have this understanding, this, this feeling that now she, Hagar, is superior to Sarai? Well, there was law, which was what Sarai was going after, and there was tradition and culture. Hagar was in this awkward position of being Sarai's servant and Abram's second wife and now the mother of his child. And although Sarai was intended, always intended for Hagar to never be more than a servant and just a surrogate kind of second wife, there was also the cultural expectation that when the backup plan wife, when the backup plan wife bore the desired child, she was then elevated in the household. So in the eyes of all around, Hagar just got, Hagar just got called up to the big leagues. She was second class no more. And not only was she not second class, but in many people's eyes, she's now displaced Sarai as Abram's primary wife. Now, is that right? Is it what happened? Just, I'm going to leave my notes for a second. You want to know one reason why you can trust the word of God? It tells you all this stuff. It gives us the truth. And it tells us how God interacts with that and how he writes it and how he sovereignly shows himself and works in all of these things. The Bible tells us the truth. Praise God. Okay? And and that should remind us too, just because this happened doesn't mean it's okay. And just because things are happening in our life doesn't mean they're okay. Does that make sense? Now, with this idea of Sarai being displaced... Listen to Proverbs 30, verses 21 through 23. It says this, Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Boom. Boom. The earth is now trembling under Abram's household. Sarai's been demoted according to Hagar, according to Hagar, and she's now treating Sarai like she would expect the number one to treat the number two, or perhaps how she's had it modeled for her, as we'll see a little bit later. Verse 5 says this, 
Sarai said to Abram, and this is with exclamation points. I'm not going to scream, but just notice those exclamation points there. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. The problem at hand in Sarai's eyes was not that Hagar was pregnant. That wasn't the problem. But that Hagar expected the child to be her own and saw herself now as superior to Sarai. This was not the plan. Sarai is telling Abram, Abram, you'd better stick with the plan. What plan did she have to stick with? Remember that? Tell him you're my sister. Stick with the plan. Sarah is telling Abram now, you'd better stick with the plan. Put that girl in her place, or this is all your fault. And I am invoking the Lord, she says. I'm getting God involved. And that right there, that right there, is the critical error of this narrative. When God, when was God not involved? You hear that question? When was God not involved? When was he not seeing what was going on? When was he not sovereignly acting according to his will? And we're going to go more down that road later. So Sarai tells Abram, you'd better stick with the plan. And verse 6, Abram's response. This is a little off me on you, okay? Abram said to Sarai, behold, your, your servant, who does he call her? My wife isn't, no, no, no. Your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Hagar went from servant to, in verse 3, Abram's wife, and then Abram's wife and mother of his child, and now back to Sarai's servant again. Abram again listens to the voice of his wife, Sarai, and gives her the green light to demote Hagar. And then it says that Sarai dealt harshly with her. And maybe there's a reason Hagar looked at Sarai with contempt. And she, Hagar, and the babe therein, fled from her. What a mess. Remember, the only time we've heard anything about the Lord in this passage so far was so that one person could invoke judgment on another when both of them were in the wrong. These are the kinds of things that we say and do to each other when each of us forget who God is, how big he is, his power and his sovereignty, and how present he is. And now, this Egyptian servant girl, who's gotten caught up in all of this mess, is going to learn these important truths about the Lord. He's going to come to her. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, as if he had to look, right? The spring on the way to shore, and shore, by the way, is near the border of Egypt. She's heading back to Egypt. And he said, Hagar, Interestingly, he calls her Hagar, servant of Sarai. Where have you come from? And where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. That sounds strange. And the word for submit, to get even stranger, the word for submit here is the same word. It comes from the same word that Sarah uh, spoke of Sarai dealing, dealing harshly with her. So the submission and the dealing harshly, 
the way the Hebrew language works is like the inflection of it, the ending of the word, changes whether you do it or you get it done to you. And so God is telling Hagar, go back and sit under her harshness. Go back and sit under her harshness. Okay? Uh, Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, it's like the writer here wants us to know who's talking to Hagar, doesn't he? I will surely multiply whose offspring? Your, who's, who's this child going to be? Hagar's. I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That sounds familiar. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. She knew that. <laughs> and shall bear a son. She didn't know that. And you shall call his name Ishmael. And Ishmael means God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. It says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Who wants that? That sounds kind of offensive, right? But it, but it isn't actually. Wild donkeys were known to roam freely in the desert. Ishmael would be a free man, which would have been music to Hagar's ears. He lived as a, a Bedouin or a nomad. However, now all is not well. It says, His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against, which means alongside of, but not within, over against all his kinsmen. So Ishmael's promised to be a free man who roams around, not living in any one place. Sounds like Abram. But because of his roaming, because he constantly lives apart from the other cultures around, never assimilating into them like Lot did and was doing in Sodom, Ishmael would be a continual thorn in the sight of those he dwelt around. They would be also his kinsmen, these people that he would dwell near and be a thorn in the sight of are his kinsmen, also the children of Abraham. So thus, we have the beginnings of the conflict between the people groups of the Middle East, between the children of Israel and the many Arabic peoples, many of whom trace their lineage back to Ishmael. There it just began. It just began here. Now remember, the purpose of Genesis as a whole, as a book, was to reveal to the people of Israel who are now coming out of Egypt, to reveal to the people of Israel who they were, and to reveal to them who God is. And God now continues to reveal who he is to them, and to us, through this revelation to Hagar, the Egyptian. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. In the Hebrew, it would have been shorter, because we don't generally call people, You are the God of seeing, right? It would be El Roy. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now, we'd say there, him who occasionally takes a look when it's convenient? No. Uh, Him who takes a look when he's not too busy? Or or when I call? No. He who continually, consistently, and in all-knowing and everywhere present kind of a way looks after me. And not not watches me like a TV show and then turns it off when the episode is over, when the season's over and walks away. 
but he who looks after me with care and involvement and in providence. Therefore, the well that was there was called Ber Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. It says there it lies between Kadesh and Baran. So if you're a Jew in the wilderness, just freed from Egypt, learning about who you are as a people, learning about this God who has just freed you and called you as his people, with your newly acquired and budding national pride, learning about your father Abraham. If you're reading or hearing this passage and, and God came down to teach someone about himself in this kind of way, who would God be coming to? We would say, well, Abram? That's certainly the precedent so far, isn't it? But who did God come to today? Who was the master in this narrative? Sarai and, and Abram. Who was the mistreated servant? The Egyptian. Hagar. Who were the masters for the last 400 years as these Jewish people wander in the wilderness? Well, it was the Egyptians. And who were the mistreated servants? The Jews. The children of Israel, of Isaac, of Abraham. So, does God only look after those of prominence? Does God only concern himself with those who are from the right bloodline? Then we know the answer is no. God doesn't have to pander to the rich, to the powerful, to the majority, because God doesn't need them. He's God. And his power, his sovereignty, and his love, and his grace, all of those things extend to the rich and to the poor, to the powerful and the weak, to the majority and the minority, to the oppressor and to the oppressed. They all need him. Those characteristics of people, who defines those? And what are those definitions in relation to who God is? We all need these things from God. If you're here today and know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, be reassured. Be reminded that you are not a Christian. You are not a follower of Jesus because we're American or because we're white or because our parents are or were Christians or deacons, pastors, or anything else like that. If you are a Christian today, you are a child of God because God looks after the oppressor and the oppressed alike. Both of them being lost and dead in their trespasses and sins. Both of them being desperate in need of God's love and grace. And God has love and has grace. Praise God. That's why we're saved. Red and yellow, black and white. It's going to sound bad at first, right? We are all sinful in his sight. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world. Upper class, middle class, lower class, religious lost and the willfully ignorant lost, the oppressor and the oppressed alike, red and yellow, black and white, they are also all precious in his sight. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Remember, Christ is building his church. And for it, God is calling together a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Every one of them becoming a child of God and a joint heir with Christ. Every one of them 
every one of us being one whom God, who was called El Roy, looks after continually, consistently, in an all-knowing and everywhere present kind of a way, with care and involvement and in providence. This is who our God is. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. It says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So Christian, at work, behind the desk, in the boardroom, in the front of the classroom, out in the field, God is with you. He sees. He knows. Kids in the halls at school, at your locker, in the locker room, before the game and after, out on the field, God is with you and he sees and he's involved God is with you back to Genesis 16 verse 15 Hagar what does she do now what God said she was going to do Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael which means what Hagar went back didn't she she obeyed she went back She must have told Abram about this interaction because he knew what to name the child. And he obeyed. And it says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay, why do we need to know that? First of all, wow, right? Why do we need to know how old Abram is? Well, because he's going to be 100 years old when Sarah gives birth to Isaac. They're going to have to wait 14 more years. So there goes the hurry up. (laughs) And they already thought it was too late, didn't they? 14 more years. Those crazy kids. Okay. So, what was Abram and Sarai's hurry up and wait? God had promised that Abram would have a son of his very own. We know that God's plan for a child had to have included Abram's wife because one man, one woman, one flesh. So they were just left to wait. Except they weren't just left, were they? Who was there all the time? Looking after them in love, in grace, in providential care. But... Because during the wait, they didn't maintain that consideration of God's character and God's presence, they went to plan B. It sounded better to them, didn't it? Man's plan B. And it has to be man's plan B because there is no God's plan B. He doesn't need a plan B. God was looking after them. And remember, he passed through those pieces alone alone and he fulfills his promises so now what about me and what about you when are the times when we are not content 
with those feelings of the hurry up and wait. Uh, Where does the need to hurry up even come from? Is God rushing anything? Or is that just us? And the answer, I think we know, it's us. It's not him. And this scripture gives us two main reasons why we get the urge for the hurry up. The, the anxiety and that reflexive plan B that stems from the wrong idea that God is not showing up or keeping his promises. So, so two main reasons. Number one, we'll call it this, designer promises. Designer promises. Okay, part of Sarai's anger, her feeling of anger in this, so that we're going to think about that. Part of Sarai's anger stemmed from the idea that she was fulfilling God's promise. But God's promise didn't have anything to do with Hagar. The boy was to be from her womb. She was Abram's wife. So you see what she did? She took God's promise and she gave it a little tweak. Designer promise. When we start to write our own version of God's promises, or when we adjust God's promises more to our liking, or when we take God's promises to others and decide to make them our own, we're headed for trouble. When we are angry with God, is it because we believe that he's not, it's because we believe he's not kept his promise. Does that make sense? When we're angry with God, it's because we believe that he's not kept his promise. He didn't do what we expected him to have to do. But realize God is under no obligation to fulfill promises that he has not made. You have to be careful with that. God has not promised me long life. He didn't promise me children. He didn't promise me a quiet residence with a white picket fence. God never promised me a job that fulfills all of my passions and ambitions. That's not a promise. In fact, Jesus told us we would have tribulation and persecution in this world. And in Galatians 6, we're told that most of the reaping that goes on in this world is the reaping of what was sown in the flesh. And what's sown in the Spirit will be reaped in eternal life, in eternity. What God has promised us in eternity also is far better than what we could ask or think. So when we make designer promises and we expect God to keep them, We're asking for inferior things to the things that God has for us. Think about that. And they're the most important things to us often, but they're inferior to the things that God has promised to us because we just don't get it. We don't see it. He's that big. And that stuff is going to come. Most of it's going to come after this life. And know that God has promised to continue to be El Roy, the God who sees for us. For instance, so, the, so this is not just Hagar's promise. This is ours. In Matthew 2018, or Matthew 28, Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, Your body, Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. All over the New Testament, Christians are promised the presence of God. So when you feel the anxiety of the hurry up, know that he is there, that he sees And that none of his promises will be left unfulfilled. And by the way, where do we find God's promises to us? In his word to us. In the word of God. That's how we correct the faults of our designer promises. 
we go to the word, we make sure that we are aware of God's promises as he promised them. So that's the first reason. Uh, The second reason we get the urge for the hurry up is a wrong view of God. And we saw a glimpse of this from Sarah when she called on God to judge between her and Abram. Uh, Really, as the narrative goes, Sarah was quick to acknowledge God's continual presence in denying her a child. But when she wanted something done right in her eyes, she asked for God's interaction as if he was absent and needed to come step in. You notice that? When do people most often ask, where was God? When things don't go the way they want. Question. Do we judge God or does God judge us? Is God wise or is he foolish? Is God eternal or is he temporal? Is God omniscient? Does he know everything or are there things that he still has to learn? Is God present or is he distant? Is God good or is he okay? Is God sovereign or just a little more powerful than we are? Is God holy or is he just like you and me? And here's one that I don't have written down, but we see it. Is God who I want him to be or is God who he is? Does that make sense? And as I grow, who he is becomes infinitely better than who I wanted him to be. Amen? The answer to these questions and others like them radically change the way we think about God. And how we view God will be the difference between being robbed of our joy in moments, in crises, or maintaining it, even in those difficult circumstances. So when I'm sick, when my job is hard and frustrating, when people at school are hard to get along with, when financial hardships strike, when persecution comes, when a person I trust disappoints, or when you're hard to get along with, or I'm hard to get along with, or when I disappoint others. Because it's always them, right? It's never me. When all of these things are happening in life, will my joy be robbed, taken from me? Or will I find that I can be content, even joyful in whatever state that I am in, as Paul said he was? My right understanding of God and my right understanding of God's promises to me, my right understanding of who he is and my relationship with him as my father, with Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit as my comforter and guiding me in truth, ever present, looking after me in love and in providence. When things, when those things are in their right place, there goes my anger. I find rest from my anxiety. The cares of this world become what they are. The cares of this world. Which is nothing more than mere vapor that blows away. And then we can say along with Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, and say this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Not my circumstances. Not my bank accounts. Not people. Not my job. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being the God who sees. Lord, we acknowledge that there are plenty of times where we can get caught up in the here and the now. And we forget that you are in the here and the now. And we worry, we fret, we get angry, we start to push and shove, we hurt other people, we fear man. But God, you are the one who's in control. You are the one who is faithful. You are the one who's never going to let any one of us slip from your hand. You are the one that's going to make us to be just like Christ. You are the one who's going to give us eternal life, who gives us a home in heaven, who makes us joint heirs with your Son. It's you. So God, I pray, Lord, help us as we continue to faithfully look into your word Help us to learn more and more about who you are. And Lord, give us the gift of faith. Help our unbelief. That we can have joy, even in the midst of difficulties in this earth, because of the joy that's set before us in Christ. Give us rest in these things and help us to honor you and glorify you. And Lord, we know, as it says in Psalm 73, that the result of that will be opportunities for us to tell of all your works. God, as we faithfully walk with you, may we also point others to you as well. May you be honored and glorified in these things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.